We've been teaching on, on discipline. I don't know whether to call it parental discipline, child discipline, the chasing of the Lord. And um, this is the last installment of that. Uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. And read a section of scripture together. We've been teaching how parents need to be disciplined in order to discipline their children. We need to be corrected in order to be uh, able to correct. We need to understand our Father's heart toward us in order to convey that and communicate that and be in sync with that when we minister to our own children. Listen to this. Uh, this is an amazing section of Scripture. I don't remember ever teaching on this before, but starting in verse 3, chapter 12, Hebrews 12, verse 3. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you be weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not resisted to, sh to bloodshed, striving against sin, like Jesus did. And you've... Uh, you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to us, uh, speaks to you as to sons. And it says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with us with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the father does not chasten? That's a fascinating question. But if you're without chasing, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. It's a sizable section of scripture. Uh, New Testament concept of chastening. Uh, and what's profound about this is, is you know, uh, the past two weeks that I've been teaching this, I've been using uh, the book of Proverbs to teach about how to train our children. And uh, some people may even say, well, that's Old Testament. And, you know, how is that applied to us today? But this is the Spirit of God speaking to the church. But he's quoting Proverbs. That section of scripture in verses five and six, five and six comes right out of the book of Proverbs. And it's the Spirit. He says, You've forgotten this exhortation. And so he's reminding us by the Spirit. So he's taken that concept of discipline uh, between a father and a son. We'll, we'll say that. We don't mean it generically, we mean children of God. Um, 
He, he's taken that, and then he applies it to the church. Now he's writing to the church about the chastening of the Lord, but he's using this whole relationship, this whole illustration of what happens between uh, children and their fathers and then uh, our Heavenly Father. The whole goal is holiness. In the end, he would chasten us because he wants us to be holy. He chastens us because it's for our benefits, for our profit. And... Um, uh, of course, verse 11 says there's pain. So chastening here, uh, he, he does three things. In verse 5, he talks about chastening. He talks about being rebuked by him. And then he talks about scourging. And uh, in the uh, footnotes of my Spirit-Filled Life Bible, it describes that as kind of th three degrees of, of discipline or three degrees of being dealt with by the Lord. Uh, first, it's verbal, and that's the way it should be. I mean, before, we never just lash out. We just never hit our kids. We explain to them what's happening and why it's happening because it's not just that they obey. It's that they be trained. We want them to learn, and this, the, the basic fundamental purpose for all of this is to cause them to learn and to be trained. And so the next part, of course, is, is uh, chasing, which includes scourging. The word chasing is an odd word. The picture that you get with it is taking, taking a bramble bush or a, 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 like a, a raspberry cane, uh, that kind of, that kind of a bramble, and you take it and you hit someone across the back of the legs with it. That feeling, that's, that's the idea of chasing here. Not very pleasant. And he says so. He, he says it's not pleasant. The reason we have a hard time hearing uh, a message about chasing, yeah, for a couple of reasons. One is we've created a painless Christianity. It's, it's a feel-good, has to be nice, has to... Uh, make me feel special kind of Christianity. But when you read early Christianity, when you go into the book of Acts, it's pain from the beginning. It was birthed in pain. It's pain all the way through. There is no such thing as a painless Christianity. But we've, we've cultivated that. We've created that. It's, he's talking about enduring. And our endurance is so low. Uh, it's in our culture these days. And so it's very hard to talk about chastening. I think the other reason that makes it really hard to talk about chastening and give a sermon about chastening is because uh, our, our own background, our relationships with our own dads, the way we were raised, was so wrong oftentimes. I can't tell you the number of people I've met where the dad was abusive. He would say derogatory things, name-calling, uh, putting them down, speaking badly to them, lashing out. You never knew whether you're going to be hit or given a gift. You had no idea what to expect. Well, that kind of thing gets into our, into our heart. And what it does is it kind of wrecks uh, this whole concept of God chasing us. We can't really comprehend that or really appreciate that or, or see that as a positive. This is being presented as a positive thing. In fact, Jesus was chastened. Jesus was chastened by the Father. Short-term pain for long-term gain. Jesus, says, the Bible says, his ear was open morning by morning. He ate bitter things to be able to understand sweet things. Jesus was chastened, not because he was a bad boy, not because he, was, he had flesh, but it's just part of the relationship. Listen, it's part of the relationship for God to chasten us. Isn't that what it says? He says, he says here, he says, uh, what's, what son does he not chasten? He goes on to, I mean, that's a profound question. 
He says that if he doesn't chasten you, uh, the King James Version says you're a bastard. You're not, there's not, you're illegitimate. You're not really in relationship with him. Can he chasten you as a good, good father and you not quit? Can he chasten you and not have you completely become undone and fall apart? In fact, you've all been chastened. The Bible says, whether you, what, no, matter, no matter what you tell me, the Bible says you've already been chastened by the Lord. You've been chastened in your life as a Christian. It's part, it's normal. Just like a pastor says that the good shepherd, he has a rod and the staff. Well, that's protection and correction. And, and that's part of the normal relationship between the father, um, the shepherd, and the sheep. In the same way, he says it's normal. It's just normal. But our whole background, our experience is so messed up oftentimes. That's why I've been urging you. The way to deal with that is to forgive your dads. If you don't, if you don't, the, the possibility of you getting this concept is, is so reduced the possibility of having a relationship with anyone in authority, your own husband or your own boss or your own pastor, is reduced. I just see it all the time. I see people, people are coming in, they're telling me how goofed up their background is concerning, mostly concerning their dad. And, and, and uh, they, there's stuff they can't ever really get. You have to flush that out of your heart with forgiveness. You have to decide. You have to say, I'm not coming up for air until I resolve this with forgiveness. Just because he did that, that, that has no reflection on, on, on my relationship with God or how I'm going to train my children. It stops with me. I remember deciding that very, very early. I didn't want my experience to come into my relationship with my children. And you can decide that. Here's what's wild about this. I just read this much scripture laying on the surface of scripture concerning chastening. Bob Sorge, he wrote a book called uh, about chastening a few years ago. And I wrote him and I said, <laughs> you're brave. This is in a time when, when the message, the message uh, people just couldn't comprehend that any bad thing could ever possibly happen to you, that you know, it's all feel good, and he's coming out with a book on the chasing of the Lord. I mean, I, don't, I can't think of it. Have you read a book about the chasing of the Lord? I can't think of one. Here what's happening. Look, there's this much scripture. This is only one verse. If you run your references on the word rebuke or being rebuked, which is verbal correction. It's all through scripture. All through the New Testament. What happens is, is, is we're searching for solutions when, we, when we're in pain. When bad things happen to us and we're in pain, we end up, we blame some kind of Jezebel spirit. How crazy is that? Try to find any verses about that. Find anywhere where Paul wrote about that. It's just not there. It's not there because it's not relevant. What's really relevant, there's this much scripture on, on chasing, and we bypass that, we ignore that, and we go right into trying to find, trying to find uh, where maybe someone in our past was involved with Masons 300 years ago. It's just so beside the point. It's like we're looking for the reason why we're in pain in, in, in all the craziest theological places. But meanwhile, laying on the surface of Scripture is a whole swath of teaching about chasing, and I haven't heard a sermon about it. 
because it's not popular, because it doesn't, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to people because we don't want to see God that way. It's easier just to blame the devil. Someone said they saw the devil one time sitting on a curb crying. They said, what's wrong? They said, people are blaming me for everything. I think it's just easy to get some cobbled up warfare concept that steps on the neck of the devil and shouts and lays hands on the walls and pleads the blood and does all that when you're struggling, when something's bad happening to you. It's just go off, go off like a pinball machine in warfare and not even stop and say, Lord, are you after something to me? Is there something you're trying to get across to me? You're my loving, gracious father. You're my dad. Is there something you want to say to me? Is there something that I'm, is there a place where I'm going off here and you're trying to bring me back? So that's the whole purpose of chastening. He wants to discipline us, not because it takes pleasure in that, but it's for our profit, it says. That's what it says here. It's for our profit, it's for our benefit. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, I just read New Testament, so it's not some Old Testament concept. Then 1 Corinthians 11, he's writing for, to a charismatic church. He's writing to a New Testament, spirit-filled church. And he's talking about the chasing of the Lord. Look in verse 23. He starts off, and, and I'll paraphrase this. He says, you know, he, he's heard what's going on there. And he says, uh, it'd be better if you didn't meet. Your meetings do more harm than good. Can you imagine getting a letter from the guy who started the church saying, you know, it would just be better if you didn't have church because it's just creating a lot of pain, a lot of difficulty, a lot of heartache, a lot of hurt. And uh, I'm sorry, I misquoted that. It wasn't verse 23, it was in verse 17. He says, I hear you come together. He says, there's divisions among you. Some of you have Apollos t-shirts. Some of you have Paul t-shirts. Some of you have Cephas t-shirts. Some of you say, I'm just Jesus people. We don't, have, we don't listen to those men. And he says, it just creates these cliques. It creates divisions. It creates camps all in a church. That There's, there's people who say, I'm a fan of this guy. I'm a Bill Johnson guy. And guys, no, I'm a Timothy Keller guy. You know, and it's all, it's all ours. And it's like being divided that way. He says, then there's fractions. There's actual splits. And there's the haves and the have-nots. And the uh, people treating others uh, because they're, they're poor. They're treating them uh, in a negative way. He describes something here that's profound. He said there's a meal. And the meal was followed by communion. It's called a love feast. It's based on what happened in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples. They had a meal, and then Jesus broke bread and gave them the cup. And from that tradition, that, that, every church kept that. In fact, we'll be doing the same on November. Thank you. We'll be doing the same thing. We're going to have a meal and express gratitude to the Lord. Then we'll go right into a communion time. They were doing that, except there are people who just come in and, and just forge, just gorge, just stood at the table and eat. I've seen people do that. Just stand at the table and eat, not even caring about the, if there's enough for other people or uh, the poor, they bring their food and then there's none for them. And he says, you know, we can solve this very simply. Eat at home. 
if it's about food, just eat at home. That's what he actually says here. Just don't you have food at home? That's an easy fix, except that's not the issue. The issue is a heart issue. The, the issue is a level of carnality, of selfishness, that says, I don't care about anyone else. All I care about is me just gorging myself. I don't care about anybody, whether they, they get in on this or whether they feel loved or included. And then, beyond that, what they would do is they'd hold up the cup and say, thank you, Lord, for shedding your blood for us. And then hold up the bread and celebrate that and say, you know, which represents us. This is my body, which was broken for you, that we could become the body of Christ. Totally ignoring that, celebrating communion, Paul calls them on it, and he reestablishes he re the, the purpose of communion. In verse 23 down to verse 25, he's saying communion is to remember Communion is a reminder. The part, I, I, I never forget Jesus. I never forget Jesus. I've not forgot Jesus for a single day since I've met him. I, I don't need communion to remember Jesus. Here's what I forget. Here's what I forget. I forget this all the time. I forget that Jesus is in you, and how I treat you is how I treat Jesus. That's what I forget. I look at your outside, I look at your exterior. They were doing the same thing. They were looking at beliefs, they were looking at habits and, and Christian culture. And they forgot. <laughs> the very people that they're rejecting is Jesus. And they were purchased with his blood and purchased uh, by, the, by the breaking of his body so that we could become the body of Christ. Here they are celebrating communion and missing it completely, missing the whole concept. So watch what happens. God saw this, and so he wants to correct this tendency among them, and so he sets a judgment upon them. The judgment. So he says this in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, that has nothing to do with church membership, it has to do with attitude. They're guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let that man examine himself, not in terms of sin, in terms of relationship. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Discernment here has to do with looking past the obvious to see what's really there. Well, the obvious is, is, is uh, Anthony and Sheila. The, the obvious is, is Nelson and Jesse. That's the obvious. To discern is to look past them and see Jesus in them. They weren't doing that. So here's what happened. Here's, God, here's how God dealt with this. He said, you've been eating, you don't even know it, but you've been eating a judgment upon yourself. And he describes that judgment in three degrees. Verse 30. He said, for this reason, many of you are weak, some are sick. Some have died prematurely. This is an amazing thing. The weakness he's talking about is impotence, spiritual. They have no spiritual strength, no strength against temptation, no strength to be multiplied, no strength to really grow. They're coming to church, they're consuming, but they're not, they're not strong in the Lord. They're not even reproducing. God's just limited that. There's this impotence upon them. 
Who wants what they have? Who wants their faith? And the next part is sick. You can imagine, there's sicknesses at Corinth. They have all the gifts of spirits, practically, working in their midst, and they can't get people healed. They're laying hands on their church people, and, and, and nothing's really happening. Some of them have died prematurely. He actually says, and many, many sleep. This is a big church, a citywide church. And he describes this as a consequence for what they're doing. He says this, this isn't God's will, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we're judged, we're chastened by the Lord. We're chastened by the Lord. That we may not be condemned with the world. He does not want us to go to hell. He does not want us to miss heaven. He does not want us to continue living the way we're living. This is New Testament. Isn't this wild? Have you been chastened by the Lord? Can you recall a time when the Lord's taken you to the woodhouse, so to speak, and dealt with you because he saw the direction you're going and he wanted to pull you back from it? Can he do this? There are people who do get sick. And, and what I don't want us to do is every time someone gets sick, say, well, they must be under the chasing of the Lord. They've done something wrong. I don't, I don't want us to do that. I don't want every time someone dies, we say, well, that, well that's because God's chasing them. You can't do that. Uh, remember the time in, in, in Luke 13, I was just happy to read this in my devotions this week. Uh, a tower fell on 18 people in downtown Jerusalem. Early one morning, a tower fell, 18 people died, and Jesus, this was right out of the newspaper, right in his day, he said, you, you suppose that those 18 people were the worst sinners? Because they, I mean, when they heard that, they, somebody thought, God got the worst people in town in, in the shadow of that thing, and it fell on them. Because there's this, there's this kind of a carnal, judgmental attitude that says, well, when that happens, it's because of this. Here's what Jesus did to fix that. He said, no, here's what you ought to be thinking. What about my relationship with God? What about, that could happen to me, so I better be right with God. That's where he took him. Then he says, you know, there was this time when Pilate went crazy there and people were offering sacrifices and he slew them and their blood was mingled with the sacrifice. He says, you suppose they were the worst, the worst sinners? He said, nah. Think about yourself. Go to God for you. It's about you. It's about him, your father, and, and you getting squared away. You don't have to make judgments about anybody else. You don't have to conclude, okay, now, did they have that car accident because there was sin in their life or because they were under the chasing of the Lord? That's between God and them. But I'll tell you this, the first place we ought to look when we're sick, the first place we ought to look, we ought to look and say, God, are you after something? Is there something you want to do with? Is there something you want to do in me? I think that's a healthy response. In fact, it's the response James says in James chapter 5. He says, any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church. That, that's the pastors. You sit down with the pastors. He says, if anyone has sinned, their sins will be forgiven. That means there must be some kind of uh, d discussion that takes place that says, pastor, do you see anything in me that needs to be, I, I'm sick, I can't seem to just recover, I'm sick. Is, do you see anything? 
in me. Or the pastor may say, you know, I want to talk to you about something. And we'll pray for you and you'll be healed. But I'll tell you, this, is, this has got to change. I've done this. I, I've, I've lived this way. I, as a pastor, I've done this. But I've also done it in the sense, I remember one time I had malaria that went to my brain. I called the elders of the church. I called the other pastors. And I said, brothers, do you see anything in me? If there's something you want to say, if there's something you see, I want you to tell me. I want to be healed of this thing. I think that kind of openness is the first response, not just to go off at the devil and, 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 and there are people who are being prayed for all the time and not getting any better. What if, what if our first response should be out of a relationship with our Father God to be able to go to him and say, Daddy, are you after something? Is there something you want to deal with me about? Is there something you're after? What if, what if there's a healthy kind of relationship that we can go that way without any condemnation? We see this in David's life. Uh, there's two verses, actually. There's, there's one in uh, 2 Samuel 7, if you'd like to go there. And it's about Solomon. And then we'll talk about David. David wanted to build this temple to the Lord God said, no, that's not going to happen. He sends the prophet in, and he says, that's not going to happen. But I'm going to raise up your son. He's going to do this. And he goes on talking about Solomon. And then he says this. He said, he said uh, if, if he sins and he disobeys and he goes off and does his own thing, he said, I'll chasten him. I'll chasten him with people. I'll raise up enemies who will attack him and I'll chasten him and then when he repents he goes on to, and you know he turns to the temple and he repents and he prays it's a powerful section of scripture I've had people raised up to to attack me and and you could just blame people you could just say well it's them it's just their issue and and I'm just a nice guy and this is totally unwarranted. Or you can say, God, are you after something? Are you trying? Because I, I, I thought you were speaking to me about this and now this is happening. I think it's a healthy response. It does happen. God will chasten us with people. He said that to Solomon. And it happens to us. It's happened to me. David... Uh, he counts the people, and I, I really don't get that. I have no idea what's happening here, but David seemed to know. He counted the people, and God came to him and said, uh, what you've done is sin, and David said, you're right, it's sin, it was wrong. So I don't know, there's something going on heart to heart that I, I don't get this whole concept of not being able to count the people and come under the severe judgment. I mean, but God, God and David were having this out, and, and God says, uh, there's, there's three degrees um, or choices, options. He actually uses the words options. He said, I give you three options. There's a consequence for what you did. And he's talking to him because there's a relationship. It doesn't mean he doesn't love David. He does love him. I mean, he's crazy about David. He says, option number one, three years of famine, three years of your, your economy being broken, Three years of no money. Three years of hard work and nothing to show for it. I'll do that for three years. Or you can have three months being pursued by your enemies. <laughs> That's like pain and pain. 
And he says there's a third option. Three days of plague. But isn't it amazing that there's a consequence for David's sin? And it was normal in their relationship. And David's not even totally falling apart and saying that's unfair of you and who are you and why are you doing this? David embraces it. And actually embraces it. He says, I rest in your mercy. He embraced it to such a degree that God actually cut back on the three days. We saw David's heart and the whole thing. Do you realize that's normal relationship with God? And we've made it seem like that's extreme, like there's something wrong with this teaching, there's something wrong with God that you're talking this way, that he would touch my finances, he would touch our health. If, if God's speaking to you and you're completely ignoring it, he'll touch two things, your finances and your health, because nothing, nothing gets close at home. The third thing is they raise up critics and opposition to you. Those three things will get your attention. If they have in my life, I think that's, that's normal. But there are people, when they hear this teaching, they go off, they say, this, it's just not even biblical. It is in David's life. It is in, it is in Solomon's life. It is in Ananias' and Sapphira's life. It is in Joseph's life. He, I can't even tell you what Joseph did wrong, but he spent his teenage years in prison and says the fetters cut into his skin. That's pain. Separated from family, separated from his culture, separated from his own bedroom, separated from the way he was raised under his father's love, being his father's favorite. All of that separated. Rejection upon rejection upon rejection. What did he do wrong? Well, like Jesus, I don't think he did anything wrong. I think God was narrowing him, his life down for the benefit of other people. Can he do that in us? Can he use pain in our lives? Why don't you turn with me to to Second Timothy? Second Timothy, chapter four. I know this is not a popular message to preach, and I haven't preached it enough. But we need to hear it. We need to, we need to look at the, the obvious things that are in Scripture and not to try to find some hidden solution. God will deal with you, and he has me. I remember one time he came to me and uh, spoke to me, and we were having amazing meetings. Like We had about nine months of just continuous meetings, every night meetings, if you can imagine that. It was a wonderful time. And God came to me uh, near the end of that and spoke to me and said, I want to deal with your pride. And I, I consented. Not that he needed my consent, but uh, it's like a father and son relationship. The, the, son, the father tells you what he's going to do. The son says, okay, dad, you do what you, you want to do. Do what you need to do. When he told me that, I was... I wasn't thinking. I, I thought he was talking like maybe a three-day retreat. It turned out to be a three-year most painful experience I'd ever gone through in my life. Three years of him peeling me back to nothing. Three years where I couldn't even preach anymore. Three years that just brought me, brought, me, brought me down. But I remember in the middle of it saying, I wish I could live this way. I wish I could live at this level of closeness to you. I wish I could live at this level of openness to you. I don't like the pain that brought me here, but I love what's happening between your soul and my soul. It was a wonderful time. 
between he and I. Extremely painful. People were raising up, speaking against me, all kinds of things. I knew that was the Lord. I knew not to resist them. See, there's this thing called the blindness of blame where you look at what they're doing and who they are and how, how messed up their lives are. And I, if I went that way, I would miss the training. I'd miss the teaching. I'd miss the revelation. I'd miss the point. Who wants to miss the point and have to go through this again? I just wanted, I wanted over with. I wanted to learn. Whatever he wanted to teach me, I wanted to learn it. He had my ear. But he told me before it even happened, that's a good, good father. I didn't realize there could be that kind of pain. I had no idea. I'd never experienced anything like that before. I'd gone from being a popular pastor to a, po a pastor who couldn't even preach. Pain. Couldn't God do that? Can he do that in you? Have you been chastened by the Lord? Here's how you find out. Here's how you know. Look back at a moment of pain. Find the moment of pain. You know where to look. You can't forget that. Look back on a time of pain and trace, trace it back and say, now, now, Father, what do you want to say to me? What do you want to work in me? What do you want to do? Trace it back to some pain. Take, take, take it back to some rejection or some time when you've, you, you just couldn't get better at whatever it was that you're going through. Take that and say, Lord, what are you saying? What do you want to say? I'm not afraid of you. You're my Father. It's Abba, 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 Father. No one loves me like you. No one cares like you. No one loves me like you. I'm not running from you. I, 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 I'm doing what David did. I open my tunic and say, bring your light. Search me, O oh God. See if there's anything inside of me, any, any wicked way. That wicked way is talking about our flesh, the tendency of our flesh. Look and find it. Put your light on it. Show it to me. I don't want to miss it. Are you after my mouth? Are you, are you after my motives? What, what are you after? What is it that you want to deal with? I say yes to this. I want you to deal with me. Don't leave me to myself. If, I, if you leave me to myself, it'll lead to destruction. Isn't that what it says about children? Children left to themselves, it leads them to destruction. Trace back the pain. Are you saying, Panna, are you saying that all pain is chasing? No. You can have pain in your flesh, where your flesh is just resisting God's dealing, that your flesh is hurt, your flesh is, your carnal man, his nose is all out of joint, his pride is hurt. You're going to have to discern yourself. You're going to have to have a relationship with the Father. You can say, Lord, I, I don't understand me. I don't understand what's going on. All I trust is that you'll speak to me. All I trust is that you know me. All I trust is that you know what's going on inside of me. But if you've had a dad who flew off the handle, who you didn't know whether he had a gift in one hand or a bat in the other hand he's going to hit you with, and he, and he put you down and called you names and, and, and brought you down, it's pretty hard for you to be able to relate to father that way. 
The only way I know to get there is you have to forgive. You have to deal with that. You have to let that go. You have to say, I don't hold it against him. I, I release him from all of that. Now, Father, make it right. I, I, want, I want a heart that knows how to respond. I, I want a heart that's open to whatever you want to do in my life, whether it's, whether it's good or whether it's chasing. I know it's for my benefit. Fundamentally, it's for my good. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could live this way? We're going to be teaching on healing quite a bit this winter. And it's, it's a complicated subject. And as soon as we narrow it down, we say all sickness, you know, is only of the devil. Or, or then there are people on the other side of it and they say, no, that means that God's dealing with you. And it's, it's such a complicated thing to teach. Even Jesus had a difficult time. People were making conclusions and he was having to correct them. Is this man blind because something his parents did? Maybe his dad was a mason. Or is it because some sin in his life, he was born this way? Maybe some sin in the womb? And Jesus went out a totally different way with that whole thing. I think it has to come back to us trying to hear from him and get perspective for ourselves and for what we need. I do know this one time. In most of the chasing stories, a couple of people were asking me to tell stories of what chasing looks like in everyday life. And the more I thought about it, the more difficult it is because it involves people, involves other people in my life. And so it's really hard to, to, to teach this. I know I've got first, uh, Second Timothy 4 coming up here. Don't let me forget that. But I knew a man who developed a brain tumor. And because of that, he had to stop working, couldn't teach school anymore, had to stop. But then, because he would have seizures with it, he lost his driver's license, couldn't go, couldn't go to work if he wanted to. And then the, the government steps in and said, you can't be alone with your children because you have these seizures. From this, and he had the operation and all of that. It was still, he lost everything. But it was such a painful time for him. And his wife had to stay home. She couldn't, she couldn't work anymore. There's a financial pinch. There's a social pinch. He's not free to go on. He can't go bowling. He can't do the kinds of things he would normally, normally do. He can't even drive his own car. Can you imagine having that taken away from you? I mean, you're housebound. He met with the pastor for prayer one time. The pastor said, look at I know what you did to this person and what you did to them was wrong. And it's the reason you're going through what you're going through. Pretty amazing thing. The pastor would say that. He said, you need to make that right. He said, can that be? Is that possible? I, I'm not aware that I really did that to that person. He said, you have to. I know the Lord's saying this. You have to make that right. So he called the person and said, did I do this? Did I really hurt you? Did I really say these things that hurt you? And the person said, absolutely you did. Yes, you did. I've forgiven you, but yes, you did. What he, what he told you is true. The guy made it right, and next thing you know, he gets his driver's license back, his job back, his wife's free to go to work, his life, he's got a slight limp, but otherwise you'd never know what happened to him. That's a story I know firsthand. That happened. You can't take that and superimpose that on every time someone has a tumor, every time someone is sick. You can't do that. That's, that's, 
naivety. You can't do that. But that actually happened. Can it happen? Yes. Can happen. Second Timothy chapter 4. Listen to this. We're going to stop here in just a minute. Let's look at verse 2. He said, preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince or convict. Rebuke. Exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Isn't it interesting that the pastor's responsibility is to step on your toes? The pastor's responsibility is to preach periodically that creates some kind of conviction that would be a, re a rebuke. And then that calling ear, that exhortation, that, that come, come back to Jesus, come back. Come back and make things right. He says, now you do that with all long suffering. I think there's possible that a pastor could be doing this out of his flesh. I think that's entirely possible. Remember, long suffering has to do with relationship between people. Uh, patience has to do with time and things and projects and, and that kind of thing. Long suffering is, is, is enduring other people until they change and, and, and working with people. Uh, one of the most amazing things that God spoke of himself is that he's long-suffering. Love is long-suffering. God revealed himself to the children of Israel as someone who's, who suffers long. There's no one who's more patient than God. There's no one who understands our frame and understands our weaknesses, understands our, why we do what we do. No one as long-suffering as God, but he'll still rebuke. He'll still convict. He'll still exhort. It's part of what has to happen. Somebody has to speak. Somebody has to say. And he's telling Timothy, he says, Timothy, in your preaching, it can't be all feel-good sermons. Next week, I'm going to Costa Rica. Then when I come back, I'll minister in Baltimore for a little bit. And then I'm going to a, a thing I was invited to with Harold Eberly. It's called a pastor's roundtable where we sit around. And uh, I, when, I, when I was invited to that, I thought, I need to be spoken to. I need to be challenged. I need, I need my own views, my own theology rattled and tested and, 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 and scrutinized. I need to play, be in a place where you're sharing with with people you don't know, and, and I, I need that. Is, there, is that something I, I think would be just a nice, comfortable thing? No. I need to get preached to. Every now and again, I just go somewhere and just, I want, I want to get to the altar. I want to be convicted. I don't want to go to a meeting where it's just a nice, feel-good meeting. I want, to, I want to be preached to. I want to, I want someone to shape me up by the Word of God. Don't you? Isn't that the place you want to be? I need that. He's telling Timothy to do this. Can we do it? There are people that I don't speak to. There are people that I don't correct. And, and if you've heard me correct, don't put up your hands. But if my eyes are closed if you did, so... If I've corrected you, or in the way I might have done that is even just question something. I know I have a soft voice. I know I can say things in a meek way or gentle way, but I know it's created pain for people as well, and people wonder, okay, well, Penn spoke to me about that. Can't we live this way? 
Isn't this the right way to live? I want to live this way. If I haven't corrected you, I don't love you. Isn't that what the Bible says? I don't love you. I Maybe I love you in the most generic sense. I love all, all people, all Christians, but if I really love you, like a father and a son, a father and a daughter, I'll call you on something. I'll say, um, I don't feel good about that. If I don't, it's because I don't feel I can do that. I don't feel that there's the kind of relationship or the kind of, that it'll, it'll take. It'll be accepted. But I've done it. I've, I've actually sat down this past week, eyeball to eyeball with someone and called them out on a number of things. And then I was very curious to see whether they'd come back to church. It's the way we must live. It's the way to be biblical. It's the safest place to be. Amen. And we sing Abba Father. <laughs> we sing Abba Father. Part of that relationship with Abba is that he can spank us. Isn't that interesting? Let's pray. Why don't we stand together? Let's pray this. Abba, Abba, don't leave me to myself, oh God. Don't let me do my own thing, go my own way. I'll, I'll ruin my life. Father, deal with me. No one, no one loves me like you. Deal with me. <clears throat> Open my ear morning by morning. Help me to see you in whatever I go through. Help, help me to know your hand when it's at work in my life. Lord, bring me to a level of relationship where you can tell me beforehand what's coming. Help me to never be afraid of consequences. Help me not to run from them, but to run to them, oh God. Help me to know your love in a mature way. And I thank you for it. I bless you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.